Welcome to Odds Bodkin's Curiosity Shop, where you'll find the unique, the bizarre, and sometimes the haunted. Feel free to look around, peruse the items, and never fear. There's nothing here that bites. Hard, anyway. <laughs> well, hello there. So pleased you've once again returned to Odds Bodkin's Curiosity Shop. I'm your shopkeeper, Chris Baker, and it is the month of October, a special time here at Odds Bodkin's Curiosity Shop, a time to speak of those things that relate to Halloween and that time of year when the veil between the living and the dead is at its thinnest. And there's no better way to talk about Halloween than to talk about our subject here uh, this week on Odds Bodkin's Curiosity Shop, this episode. Uh, to set the scene, let me take down this uh, mannequin head. There's a mask here I'd like to show you. It resembles that of uh, Captain Kirk mask, a likeness of William Shatner from back in, oh, I believe, 1975. The odd thing about this mask is that the, the hair has been altered and somebody has spray painted it from its original skin tones to a white. Now, I would ask you maybe to, to try this on for size, but uh, that's probably not such a good idea. Those who have worn this mask before have seen uh, visions of knives and blood and death uh, flash before their consciousness, so we'll just leave that uh, mask right on this uh, mannequin head as we get ready to talk about uh, the subject of today's episode, the very place where this mask came from. We're talking about John Carpenter's Halloween. John Carpenter's Halloween has to be one of my favorite movies, uh, horror movies of all time. Uh, it's one of my favorite movies to watch at Halloween or just any time of year that I want a good scare. And it's it's set in motion a franchise that had some highs and lows. And sometimes it feels like the lows are more than the highs. But there was so much potential there. And there's so much potential in a character like Michael Myers. I think uh, a lot of us big-time Halloween fans uh, are a little more forgiving of some of the some of the things that have happened to this franchise that were less than what they should have been or could have been. But to me, Halloween has been uh, such a great franchise because of that character that John Carpenter created, Michael Myers. And uh, throughout the throughout the films, uh, we've gotten different iterations of Michael Myers, uh, different men playing the the shape, uh, playing the boogeyman, uh, different versions of the masks, some better than others. But uh, one thing remains the same Michael Myers with that, that white mask, that emotionless uh, blank face. I think that's probably one of the things that is most scary about Michael Myers is he always has that kind of dark uh, coverall and then that white mask against that and against the the black of night that's usually uh, behind him. And uh, for most of the movies, you don't really see his eyes. The eyes are, are these black holes uh, that uh, you look into and see forever. It's one of those masks that just uh, is synonymous with the character. And I, I think it's because... You know, you've got this, uh, like I said, uh, this blank, emotionless, expressionless face. And somebody wearing that mask uh, is committing horrible murders. And to 
to make something so full of rage and so full of hate that that's what we expect from a murderer. Somebody that's doing it uh, because they're angry. And to have it be done by somebody with no emotion, that's that's a frightening thing. And I think that's probably at its core one of the one of the things that made Michael Myers so frightening is that there was no emotion to it. It was almost like he was doing a job. Uh, like he was preordained to, to do this. Like he had something in him. Uh, Michael Myers was gone. And there's something else in him doing these because he has to. Like I said, because it's a job, so to speak. And, and for somebody to, to do something like murder um, because they have to. Uh, because it's, you know, it's what has to be done. Uh, that's a frightening thing when there's no emotion in it, uh, when it's just murder for murder's sake, uh, that's, that's a frightening thing. And, and then the, there's also uh, on the flip side, there's the wonderment of what drives this character, what drives Michael to do what he does. And they slowly incrementally kind of paint a bigger picture, which I thought was, you know, some people don't like the direction that Halloween took, but for my money, I really enjoyed the fact that we got a little bit of information in this movie and then another bit of information in this movie and then so on and so forth. Now, at times it got a little crazy and it got a little over the top, uh, especially before we got to the reboot. But I liked the idea that here's a, here's a reason. We're not going to tell you the reason. We're going to give you hints at the reason, let you draw your conclusion until the next movie. And then uh, I, I think there was a lot of potential there to really do something cool. I, I don't particularly like the way they went with it, but that's what we're doing this podcast for. Of course, uh, we've got a new movie coming out on October 15th, Halloween Kills, the third or second in what looks to be a trilogy of movies from David Gordon Green. And, of course, we're going to talk about that movie uh, right after the Monday after it's released. But I thought it would be really cool to talk about the franchise in its entirety. What got us to this point where we're, like I said, on our third reboot and uh, just kind of talk about the fun uh, and the horror of Halloween franchise and uh, and like I said, how we've gotten to this point, where have we been, where has Michael been, and where is he going as we get into the third installment, which should be out, uh, I believe, October of next year, so we'll only have to wait a year. And that seems like a bit of a rush, and Halloween has not had a good track record with rushed sequels, so we'll, we'll talk about that, but uh, right now let's kind of dig into the movie that kicked off the franchise, Halloween 1978. John Carpenter was hot off the heels of the assault on Precinct 13 in 1976 when independent film producers Erwin uh, Yomblins and uh, Mustafa Cade uh, came to him. And they wanted to do a movie uh, about a killer stalking babysitters. Uh, they were going to call it the Babysitter Murders. Uh, they wanted to do something with a slasher film that was kind of tantamount to what The Exorcist did. The same reaction, of course, The Exorcist, uh, any of you that remember that, or if you're younger and heard stories, I mean, it, people were traumatized <laughs> by seeing The Exorcist. People were left movie theaters throwing up. It was just, uh, people thought they were possessed. It was just a hor horrible experience for some moviegoers watching The Exorcist. Of course, those of us that love horror thought it's great, but... They wanted that sort of reaction uh, for the 
for this, you know, burgeoning uh, slasher film uh, industry that is kind of starting. You know, you had uh, some, you know, Psycho was really kind of one of the first slasher films. Uh, you had uh, things like Black Christmas, Bob Clark's movie, uh, Texas Chainsaw Massacre had been out uh, a few years prior. Uh, they wanted to... to uh, do a slasher film in, in this style that had this sort of impact. And of course, John Carpenter did it. He he wanted to have complete creative control, so that's what uh, that's what he got. And of course, they you know changed things. Uh, they they decided to base it around Halloween, and Michael Myers was created as a character. And uh, and we'll get into that. But uh, one of the things I loved about what John Carpenter did. That simple open with the jack-o'-lantern and just kind of the slow uh, creep in and the, the theme music that John Carpenter wrote, that creepy theme music, just really sets the mood. I mean, if you're not on the edge of your seat, uh, kind of looking over your shoulder at what might be creeping up behind you after that intro, then, then you've got no soul. Because that's that's some creepy stuff, and that that uh, little like kids uh, poem that they do with the black cats and goblins rhyme kind of feels like uh, an old world incantation to ward off evil on Halloween. It's just a great way to start the film, and uh, and one of the things that really I think that sets that film apart is just things like little things like that. All the POV work, you know, you you have Michael, you're first thing you see is from Michael's point of view and and that kind of carries on throughout the the film and throughout the franchise the, that's a, a big thing is uh Michael's POV is a, a great way to take you and, and put you in Michael's head uh give you that uneasy feeling there's a there's an otherworldly feel to it uh, like you, you shouldn't be there. You shouldn't be in his head. You, you, you know, for those of us who know the movie, uh, even still watching it, uh, you shouldn't be in the head of this killer, but you are, and you can't do anything about it. And that to me is, uh, is unsettling. And of course we see Michael as a kid, uh, killing his sister, Judith. And that that look on that kid's face at the end, when they pull the clown mask off and it just that blank look like uh like he, he, there's no emotion there whatsoever and and dr loomis of course uh donald pleasance the great donald pleasance uh from great films like fantastic voyage uh played blofeld in the james bond films uh just a a litany of top-notch roles for this uh great actor uh was a part of this and uh, I, I, I've heard stories about how he came on board with this, uh, something about his daughter being a fan of, of John Carpenter. You know, it's just, uh, they were so lucky to get Donald Pleasance to play Dr. Sam Loomis. And, uh, and from the beginning, he just adds a gravitas to, to this character and to this movie. And from the very beginning, he, he refers to Michael as it. And you know, right off the bat, Michael Myers is not just some kid. He's not just some human being. And that's that's one of the, my biggest complaints to some fans that uh, they, they don't like the fact 
that Michael is portrayed in some of the later films as almost being supernatural. But really, it was kind of set up from the beginning. You know, Dr. Loomis, how many freaking uh, monologues and, and, you know, did he have where he's talking about Michael's not human? He is. He's an it. He's, you know, he's evil personified. Uh, they, they really set up the beginning that he is not human. And as the, the movie goes on, you know, physically, we get that representation. So for anyone to sit there and be upset because Michael Myers isn't just a regular guy running around killing babysitters, well, you didn't pay attention to the movie because it was set up from the beginning that he is more than than just some serial killer. If you want serial killers running around killing people, if you want uh, regular guys stalking people, go watch a Lifetime original movie. You'll get plenty of that there. But if you want something that's, that's creeping into the supernatural, well, then Michael Myers is your man. But... Uh, Michael Myers. Another another big complaint uh, a lot of people have about the later movies is that in some of them Michael Myers moves too quick, uh, which I I like the slow moving Michael Myers, the very deliberate Michael Myers, just as much as anyone else. But if you watch that first film, um, you know he he moves quick when he wants to. Uh, when he you know when uh, Doctor Loomis comes across the uh the bus that uh that have they let loose all the michael let loose all the uh insane you know people at the uh from smith's grove uh and he's escaped and then he jumps on dr loomis's car and then takes off in it uh, he's moving very cat-like in that uh so you can't say michael doesn't move quick when he wants to uh and to poo poo you know, movies like four and five, because in some of those, he moves a little quicker than just the slow, you know, power walking Michael Myers that we're used to. Well, then again, you're not watching the whole movie. You're, you're, you have a vision of Michael in your head and you don't want to look at what is actually presented to you on the screen. That's, you know, and that's, that's all fine. Everybody can have their opinion on what Michael Myers is best, but you can't say that Michael doesn't do this uh, when he did it in the very first movie, uh, and, and use that to to downplay uh, some of the better qualities of some of the later movies. Now, all that aside, uh, some of the things I really loved about this movie was the fact that uh, John Carpenter used a lot of these lingering shots to really set up the creepiness and set up the tension. You know, there's that one scene where Laurie's walking away. And you see her walking away and Michael Myers is just standing there watching her. And John Carpenter kind of leaves it on that shot a little longer than most directors I think they would. You know, he took it to where you should probably cut to another scene and then lets it go just a little bit further. And that just, it, it adds such an eeriness and it adds such uh, tension to the scene and it's just one of my favorite shots of the movie because, uh, you know, it, like I said, uh, other film directors would have cut to the next scene uh, way earlier in that shot. But but John Carpenter had the patience to let that shot just linger. And uh, that's probably one to me, one of the creepier scenes in the movie. And 
uh, I think that's what makes this movie so great. And, and the classic horror films from the, the 70s and 80s, you know, you had directors that had the patience to, to let things play out the way they should, to, uh, to build tension, to build the creep factor up. To not just rely on jump scares. And, and that's one of the things I loved about this movie. Um, another thing I thought was really good and kind of played into uh, another problem a lot of people have with um, Halloween 2 and on is the fact that a lot of a lot of people do not like the fact that Laurie Strode was revealed to be Michael Myers' sister. Uh, I personally like that. It, it adds a level of, okay things are okay that's that's another piece to the puzzle and that you know we don't know why michael is doing what he's doing and that can only play for so long if there's no consequence if there's no reason there's no rhyme to it he's just doing it to do it okay you know uh after how many movies are you going to do before that becomes old you gotta you gotta start giving people a reason to care about figuring out this mystery and and i thought that was uh it was a smart idea, whether they originally planned it or not. In you know, before part two, uh, I know they. I don't think they were planning on being a part of uh, part two, uh, John Carpenter and Deborah Hill. But uh, but they wrote it, and I don't know if it was. It had to be in the back of their mind. Now we'll kind of get a little more into that into uh, the next section of this uh, this podcast, but. Um, one of the things I think is really telling about where you know they were at least pondering this is when we see Lori in the back of the classroom and the teachers talking about fate and it just kind of you get that slow creep in on Lori and then she looks over outside the, the window and sees Michael there and then she looks away and looks back and he's not there. I think that was really telling, you know, there was some connection between Michael and Lori. It wasn't just because uh, he saw her on the steps of the Myers house with Tommy Doyle. I can't buy that. That's the only reason he chose her. Uh, there had to be another reason. And, and I think, you know, whether John Carpenter and Deborah Hill uh, had planned it to be this way when they, when they wrote this first Halloween and then it just came to fruition in part two, or they saw what they had set up in part two, that there had to be another reason, uh, you know, the fateful reason why Michael was so fixated on Lori. And the next logical step is, well, that's his long lost sister. I, I, I don't know, you know, the weather twos and the why fours, but it, it really was set up to, in the very beginning, that there was more to the Michael Laurie relationship than just happenstance. And, uh, and again, like I said, that's, that's one of the things I like about it because it's just uh, another piece to the puzzle. Another really cool thing I, I liked about uh, this movie franchise and especially this first movie is how much it has invaded and taken over pop culture. One of the things I love uh, to, to my own detriment, I, I don't know why I like it sometimes, but I'm a huge wrestling fan. And uh, one of the scenes we're going to talk about later where Michael Myers, uh, Laurie thinks he's dead and he just kind of sits up and then turns his head and looks at her. Uh, the Undertaker 
does that in the WWE. Uh, just when you think he's down and out and the bad guy or whoever he's facing is about to put their finishing maneuver on him, he just sits up and then turns his head ever so slightly and looks at them and gives them that evil eye. Uh, that has to come from Halloween. That has to come from Michael Myers. I've never heard The Undertaker talk about it, but that had to be where he got that. And Kane, uh, his, you know... Uh, fake brother in, in wrestling uh, does this little thing where he kind of tilts his head and, and looks at uh, you know whoever he's facing and he claims I've heard him go on record as saying that he got that from his dog but if you watch uh, another really frightening scene that we're going to talk about here in a little bit uh, where Bob gets killed and uh, another lingering shot that probably should have ended sooner but didn't you know John Carpenter let it roll uh, Michael Myers just stares at Bob and kind of tilts his head and and Kane does that in the WWE and he had to have been influenced. I know he says his dog inspired that, but he had to uh, get that from from Michael Myers. I, I don't believe any other story that uh, comes out any other way. And another scene that kind of happens close to where uh, where we were just talking about with that long shot of Lori walking away is when Tommy Doyle's carrying the pumpkin and he's being bullied by Lonnie and, and these kids and they're, they keep yelling at him, he's going to get you, he's going to get you, he's going to get you. And uh, I really love that uh, Rob Zombie used that, sampled that for the song uh, I'm Your Boogeyman from the Crow 2 soundtrack. Uh, it, it's funny because he would go on to do one of the reboots of, of Halloween. Uh, and I'm surprised he didn't use that there, but it's funny. This this song that uh, he samples, you know, something from Halloween. Uh, it's about a boogeyman, which that's Michael Myers is the boogeyman. And uh, it's in the Crow 2 soundtrack. So <laughs> I just found that uh, he probably should have held on that uh, just a, a little bit longer. Another thing I really liked about this movie is uh, they had a couple really good one-liners. Uh, that line where I believe, uh, it's the sheriff talking to Lori. Uh, he says it's Halloween. I guess everyone's entitled to one good scare. And then when, uh, Dr. Loomis and I believe, I don't know if Sheriff Brackett is with him or not, but they're at the grave where Judith Meyer's gravestone is missing. And Michael or, uh, Dr. Loomis says, uh, he came home and it was just kind of like, you know, in Poltergeist, when the little girl, Carol Ann, says they're here, that was the they're here moment for me in this movie. And just uh, just fantastic. And Dr. Loomis just had so many great lines. Uh, and, and Donald Pleasance really kind of delivered on, on each and every one of them. That little uh, explanation of Michael Myers that he gave to, to Sheriff Brackett was just so haunting and, and further kind of cemented that uh, Michael Myers is more than just uh, a regular man. He's, he's something, there's evil in him that is not human. And, uh, and I think you know, the, the insanity of Dr. Loomis ratchets up with each progressive movie. I mean, he's he's a little insane here. Uh, he's not full-blown insane like he is in part six, but uh, but I always, you know, I was writing some notes. I, I rewatched the first Halloween. I thought I, I'd jot down some notes as I was watching it. And I originally in my notes, I put that uh, 
Dr. Loomis is the Van Helsing of of Halloween. And and it's true to a degree. You know, he's always hunting uh, Michael like Van Helsing is hunting Dracula. But I, I think maybe it's more a uh, Captain Ahab white whale scenario. You know, Captain Ahab was obsessed with, you know, finding the white whale, Moby Dick. And... It, you know, it led to his death. And I think that's really kind of what we get with the Dr. Loomis character. Maybe a cross between Van Helsing and, and Captain Ahab. But it was an interesting, you know, concept when I when I started thinking about it. How, how closely Dr. Loomis uh, resembles those two characters. And another thing I really loved about this movie was the fact that uh, like I said, it, it's a very patient movie. John Carpenter was so patient with this. He just ratcheted up the tension with point of view shots, with these long lingering shots, with um, shots of Michael. You know, he's just on the periphery uh, or he's just in the background or in the foreground and, and just ratcheting up that tension. We don't get an on-screen death until about 44 minutes into this and and that's the wallace's dog that michael kills uh, i mean he kills the guy that he gets the coveralls from but that's an off-screen death we don't see that happen we see the results of it we see the we see the body but uh, but we never actually see that death and uh I just, you know, that's one of the things that I love about this is the patience that uh, John Carpenter had with uh, with this whole movie, but with even with the killing, you know, and, and it's not a gross, gory, uh, bloody movie. I mean, there's some blood in it, but it's, you know, it's not as gory and violent as as some of the later ones were. And, uh, and that's, that's another testament to this, that you don't need gore. You don't need ultra violence, uh, to make something scary. You just need patience. I, I think that's the key to making good horror, uh, because horror today is so full of just jump scare after jump scare. And, uh, if some of these film directors were to, to take the patience to to create horror to create uneasy feelings instead of just relying on cheap gimmicks uh i, I think the horror franchise now there's you know horror uh is in pretty good shape right now we got a lot of good uh directors out there mike flanagan uh i'm always excited to see you know what he's got going on greg nicotero is always doing fantastic things especially with the walking dead and with uh uh with Creep show. Walking Dead, there was an episode here a couple weeks ago with the ferals. Uh, there's people that they look like Gollum creeping around. That's probably one of the scariest episodes of The Walking Dead I've seen in, in a long, long time. But uh, but that's that's the one thing I, I loved about this movie is the patience. And and there's some really cool references. Uh, maybe, maybe they weren't references at the time, but it's funny how things played out because it's funny when Tommy Doyle and Lindsay... Uh, are being babysat by Jamie. Uh, they are watching the original The Thing. Uh, and, of course, John Carpenter would go on to remake that in uh, 1982, I believe. So <laughs> it was kind of a, a nice little 
Uh, I don't know whether he, you know, it's one of those The Simpsons did it first uh, sort of scenario. Uh, John Carpenter did it first, a self-fulfilling prophecy. Uh, you name it. Uh, it's it's probably there. But after the Wallace's dog, that's when really the body count starts to pile up. You have Annie Brackett, uh, who meets her untimely demise as the first human that is is killed on screen of course annie brackett uh being played by nancy kyles uh did a great job uh then we have pj souls uh playing linda and uh john michael graham who plays her boyfriend bob they come and they get frisky and probably one of the most frightening deaths in this movie happens here as, as bob's going downstairs and He's got these big glasses, these big Coke bottle glasses, and Michael kills him. And that whole scene where Michael Myers kills Bob is just so, it's so violent. And I think probably what makes it so uh, scary is the silence around this scene. Uh, there's not a lot of screaming. There's not a lot of pleading. There's not a lot of uh, noise at all. It's a very silent kill, but it's violent and it's hard. And Michael stabbing him with the kitchen knife and and pinning him, you know, up in the air. Uh, I, I know that people have, you know, done research on this and that's not physically possible. I don't care. It's the movies. It's a horror film. Suspension of disbelief, folks. Um, but it's such a, a violent death. And that's that scene where Michael just stands there, kind of backs away and stands there and just kind of tilts his head. Uh, not even in an admiring what he did, but a look at what I've done as somebody would look at a picture they had just painted. Uh, maybe I'm, maybe I'm reading that wrong. Maybe that's not quite the right analogy, but it's one of those shots where John Carpenter lingered on that shot, probably a lot longer than a lot of directors would have. And and I think that's what makes it eerie. You know, it's just the silence and him kind of cocking his head, looking at what he had just done. And that's to be one of the scariest kills in the movie, if not the scariest kill in the movie. One of the scariest scenes in the movie, the scene that scared the bejesus out of me as a kid, came next. Um, back in, uh, when did Halloween 2 came out? In 81, so I believe in, I can't remember if it was 80 or 81, they released Halloween to uh, make its television debut. And... I don't remember if it was uh, the trailers for the actual movie Halloween or if it was the trailer for the TV broadcast of Halloween. I'm thinking it was the TV broadcast for Halloween. Uh, I remember seeing that as a kid. And this scene that they showed in the trailer scared the crap out of me. It's the scene where Michael walks into the doorway and he's got that sheet over him like a ghost and Bob's glasses over top of it. I don't know what it was about that that just scared the bejesus out of me as a kid. Even to this day, it's still a little unnerving uh, when that scene happens. And then he comes up behind Linda and kills her. The, the kill of Linda was a little lackluster for my money. But um, 
But the lead up to that with Michael in that sheet and the glasses, that to me was the scariest part of that. And uh, that's, that's again, one of the things I loved. It's those, those little things, the silence, uh, the, the simplicity, uh, you know, not these big or elaborate kills. I mean, Michael was very uh, brutal and violent and direct and to the point. There wasn't a lot of gimmicks to his kills in Halloween 1, which was 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 what made it so uh so great and so frightening and that's like i said that's one of the scenes that probably uh scared me the most as a kid and like i said even as an adult uh pretty <laughs> pretty unnerving when that scene comes on and then of course you, you juxtaposition that with uh sheriff brackett and dr loomis hanging out at the michaels house while you know everything's going on at the Wallace house, and it's just so frustrating to see those two doing nothing, waiting for Michael, as we know everything is going on down the street at, like I said, the Wallace house. And uh, and I think that's probably a good vehicle. I think John Carpenter used that to, to ratchet up that tension that, uh, that I've been talking about. Um, and, of course, uh, he used that... Things like that, things like the silence, uh, things like, you know, specific simple music cues and, and you know, a hit of the strings uh, to really bring about uh, a sense of unease that uh, that just made this movie so special. And then it kind of, we come down to the, the nitty gritty of it, the end of, the, of it all, where Lori goes over to the Wallace house. She's looking for her friends. She goes up into the room, finds the, the gravestone. Annie, Bob, Linda, they're all dead. And then we get that great reveal of Michael Myers. She's standing there in front of this this blackness of a closet. I can't remember if it was a closet or the doorway. But all of a sudden, we see... And it's a simple light trick. Uh, John Carpenter just uh, had a light down below and kind of just moved it ever so slightly. And all of a sudden, it illuminates that Michael Myers mask against the black backdrop and it's just so haunting and so chilling and so frightening uh again probably one of the most uh chilling uh moments of the movie and then we see uh you know michael uh big showdown dr loomis finally shows up uh to to be a part of the action and i believe it's like an hour and 40 minutes into the movie and Dr. Loomis and Lori finally have a scene together. But uh, but Michael's shot several times. And uh, I, I think I did uh, crunch the numbers. Uh, he gets a knitting needle to the throat, uh, coat hanger to the eye. He's stabbed, shot six times at point blank, falls from a second story window. And uh, he's seen laying there. And then all of a sudden he's gone when Dr. Loomis looks back there again. Pointing to the fact that Michael Myers is more than just, and always been more than just a regular guy. There's something more to this character. There's something more inside of him than just uh, being a human being. And uh, and that's, uh, you know, that's Halloween. 
And uh, it, it's, like I said, one of my favorite horror movies of all time and really set this franchise in motion. Now, I'm not going to spend as much time on the other films. We're just kind of going to kind of go over them briefly just to talk about some of the highlights and lowlights. But uh, 1981, they really kind of rushed Halloween 2 into production because, you know, Mustafa Cade and I believe Erwin Yoblins was still uh, a part of this at the time. Deborah Hill, John Carpenter didn't want to be a part of it. Uh, there was actually some lawsuits and they were, they ended up writing it and getting producing credits. Uh, they got Rick Rosenthal, who was a, uh, 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 a new director, uh, didn't really have very many credits uh, to his name. But they brought him along and and he did a great job in so much as he he really kept the feel, the filming style that John Carpenter set in motion with the first one. He really kept that kind of uh, style that that John Carpenter had uh, some POV shots and things like that. It really felt like uh, maybe not completely like a John Carpenter movie, but it felt like it fit. With Halloween one and of course it all takes place uh, directly after the events of, of Halloween Lori's getting taken off to the hospital by uh, dreamboat EMT driver Jimmy who becomes a de facto love interest in this dr. Sam Loomis and Sheriff Brackett are are looking for Michael Sheriff Brackett finds out his daughter is is one of the victims and he kind of he kind of goes off uh, to grieve, and then we get introduced to Hunter Von Leer as uh, Deputy Gary Hunt, and he and Donald Pleasance are, are looking for Michael Myers, and uh, Michael Myers is making his way to the hospital to uh, to get at Lori, and essentially killing everyone in the hospital. It really, <clears throat> for my money, this one... Uh, you know, the, the beauty of the first one is that you had a lot of characters you cared about. Of course, there's Lori, uh, Annie and Linda. Uh, they have their faults, but they're they're good kids, it seems. And and they're all friends and they're they're all fairly likable. Uh, you know, they're teenagers, but you get to the hospital and you get, you know, uh, Bud and, 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 and people like that. It just uh, characters I really didn't care about. I didn't mind seeing a lot of them die. And some of them died in gruesome ways, you know, uh, with hypodermic needles to the side of the eye. Uh, you get, uh, you know, one of the nurses being drowned in the uh, hot tub that's cranked up the heat. And you get her face essentially boiled. Uh, some very gruesome um, deaths. Um, and, and you do get some chills, you know, the, the Michael stalking the halls of the hospital was creepy. Uh, but you just, uh, I, I don't think when you can find Michael to just that, that one area, it just, uh, to me, it felt like, um, it was putting Michael in a box and he wasn't able to be as scary as he could have been. Now, this is kind of where they start to introduce some things. They introduce Sam Hain. Uh, Dr. Loomis finds that written on the wall in the school, um, kind of leading people to, to understand a little more about the evil behind Michael Myers. You find out that Lori is not a strode by birth. She's a strode by adoption. And that she is actually Michael Myers' sister. And that is revealed from Dr. Loomis's, you know, assistant nurse. And 
you've, you know, Lori has some dreams, some flashbacks to when uh, she remembers visiting Michael at the uh, Santa, insane asylum. I don't know if it was Smith's Grove at the time or probably must have been Smith's Grove. But uh, you get some really good reveals. And like I said, uh, that's one of the things I liked about this. I don't mind that Lori was Michael's sister, long lost sister, because uh, it it doesn't explain why Michael's doing what he's doing. It doesn't just lay it all out for you, but it gives you a little piece of the puzzle that you can, okay, things are starting to make a little more sense. I still don't know what is, uh, what all, what all of this has to do with why Michael is doing this, but I know this, this, this is part of the reason. And now when you, put that in context with the fact that they thought this was going to be the last Michael Myers movie. Maybe it doesn't make much sense because, because you're not really, you know, given the complete picture, uh, there's no more movies to, to add pieces to that puzzle, but we did get more pieces and we did get more movies, but, uh, <laughs> at the time, uh, this was going to be the last Michael Myers movie. This was supposed to conclude the, uh, story of Michael and Lori and uh, while you didn't get the whole picture painted, you did get uh, a little bit more of the picture painted and things started to make a little more sense. So uh, in that regard, that was one of the things that uh, I really liked about Halloween 2. Um, just by the way they ended it with uh, Laurie and Loomis finally coming together again uh, late in the movie and Lori, apparently a crack shot in Haddonfield. They must have a pretty good uh, rifle range for her to practice her shooting. Uh, she uh, takes full advantage of that in the new release of uh, Halloween uh, 2018 version. But uh, she shoots out Michael's eyes and then Sam Loomis blows Michael and himself up as Lori escapes. And we see a, a flaming Michael Myers uh, fall and he's gone and and we're done with michael myers and laurie or so we thought uh but there again uh halloween 2 i i thought was a good sequel it wasn't as great as the first one but it was a good sequel and if that were to wrap up the michael and laurie storyline i would have been fine with that um it didn't and and we'll find out in here in a minute uh but mustafa Cade. Uh, decided to take things in a different approach for Halloween 3. Uh, they decided that they were essentially going to make the franchise, the Halloween franchise that, that they had created, into more of an anthology series. And each movie going forward was going to be its own standalone film. And that's where we get 1982's Halloween 3 Season of the Witch. Now, where Halloween 2 really kind of lacked the innocence of Halloween 1 and doubled down on the violence that uh, wasn't as prevalent in Halloween 1, Halloween 3 uh, ramped up the violence and the innocence. Of course, directed by Tommy Lee Wallace, also written by Tommy Lee Wallace, who uh, did some work. I believe he did some editing work on the first film. Uh, I can't remember if he was uh, a part of the second film in any way, but uh, took the helm. This, of course, he's been known for some uh, some some good stuff in horror. Uh, one of my favorites, the It miniseries from the early '90s. Uh, he was the director of that. Uh, always, I you know, for my money, I choose that over the the new It 
uh, theatrical release that came out here in the past few years. Uh, but that's for another podcast episode. But uh, he uh, was a part of Halloween 3, really the, the driving force behind Halloween 3. Uh, this is one where John Carpenter, first one where John Carpenter and Deborah Hill didn't have any involvement in the writing or the directing. Uh, word on the street was that John Carpenter took over directing of Halloween 2 late in the game because producers weren't happy with uh, with the lack of, of violence, and he kind of ramped that up a little bit, which is surprising uh, because, uh, you know, he didn't really go for the ultra-violence in the first one, and Rick Rosenthal was not, none too happy about that. But Tommy Lee Wallace uh, in sole control of... Halloween 3, and it all really kind of starts out, um, you're really introduced to one of the main characters of Halloween 3 that doesn't have a single line, and it is the three masks produced by Silver Shamrock Company. Uh, you've got the pumpkin, the skeleton, and the witch mask, which to this day, uh, those masks creep me out. I, I know you can get those. Uh, a lot of places uh, make uh, versions of those masks, and, and you can uh, pick those up. Uh, still creepy. Um, the cover of the, the video for this uh, creeps me out, too, uh, because you've got the kids wearing those masks, and you just see their silhouettes lit by the... Uh, orange background of sunset these kids are going off trick-or-treating and their silhouettes are kind of elongated it's just creepy and otherworldly and very very much the reason this was actually the first um the first halloween movie that i rented uh of course i saw halloween one on tv i don't even know if i'd seen halloween two yet uh but in 82 when uh, this came out in the movie theater. I was still a bit too young to go watch it in the theater. My mom would not take me to it because she and my, she and my dad are not fans of horror. Uh, so I never got to see this in the theater. But once it came out on VHS, uh, I couldn't wait to rent it. And uh, much to my chagrin, it had nothing to do with Michael Myers. Uh, but that didn't stop me from really liking Halloween 3. Uh, a lot of people didn't like this for the longest time because it didn't have Michael Myers. But I, even as a kid, I could appreciate it appreciate it for what it was and just a good scary movie of course it starts off with this guy he's uh got the silver shamrock mask he's uh, he's being attacked he ends up dying and the doctor at the hospital dr dan chalice played by the incomparable tom atkins uh a pittsburgh native and uh if you think if you haven't seen this movie or you don't remember uh, Tom Atkins. Just think of uh, Stacy Keach meets Tom Selleck. And there you've got there you've got Tom Atkins. And he does a fantastic job. Of course, he's no stranger to to uh John Carpenter. He's worked some John Carpenter movies. He was in the fog. Uh he's worked with George Romero. Um uh, was part of I believe he was a part of Creep Show, but uh, you know, he's a Pittsburgh son, so you know, he's all right in my book. And he really, you know, while one of the things as a kid uh, that always bothered me was the leads in these Halloween movies were not the action hero types that I liked. Dr. Sam Loomis was a short, bald old man. Uh, you had um, 
Dr. Dan Chalice, who was a he's a he's a thicker built guy with a big bushy porn star mustache. Uh, you know, guys like Tom Selleck and Burt Reynolds had in the 70s and 80s. Uh, it wasn't my idea of, of a you know an action hero leading man, the guy that's gonna save the day. But really, he does a fantastic job. That was me as a kid not appreciating the uh, the fine job that uh, Tom Atkins did uh, with this character, uh, Dan Chalice. And uh, I, I'm sure I'm gonna screw it up and say Don Chalice at some point. I don't know why, but uh, Dan Chalice, the character, uh, he gets uh, involved with. Ellie uh, Grimbridge, who is the daughter of this this man that was murdered in in Doctor Chalice's office. Uh, there's a link to Silver Shamrock, so they go to the Silver Shamrock uh, factory uh, to do some investigating. There they meet uh, Madge Guffman, played by uh, Garden Stevens, and she's you know she knows something's up with Silver Shamrock. We also meet uh, the Cupfer uh, family. Uh, who uh, the the father, one of the top sellers of silver shamrocks in the area, and and he uh, and his family are there uh, getting a free tour. Uh, these characters, uh, Marge, uh, the Cupfers, all are part of two of the scariest scenes uh, that I've ever seen in a movie. Uh, of course, these silver shamrock masks are being marketed to kids all over the world. Uh, it's one of those things, and, and it kind of plays to themes of commercialism and, and things of that nature. Uh, but every kid has to have a silver shamrock mask. You're not cool if you don't have a silver shamrock mask. And on Halloween night, at a certain time after the creature feature, there's going to be a special uh, commercial and a special surprise. And all the kids are supposed to be watching the television when this is going on. And uh, the little kid, uh, there's Mr. Cupfer, his wife, and uh, and their son. They're asked to go into this room. The kid's given a mask, the uh, pumpkin mask. And they're asked to, to sit there, and the kid's watching the TV, and the Silver Shamrock commercial comes on. You find out it's a test, an experiment, if you will, to see if it works and the flashing and the noise uh, activates something in the the plastic uh, little tag, uh, ID tag for the mask that has a, a microchip in it uh, infused with a piece of stone from Stonehenge that we find out has been stolen. There's a stone from Stonehenge, Stonehenge stolen, and, and we find out that the folks at Silver Shamrock, run by Connell Cochran, they've got it, and... This all plays out where the mask does its thing. It starts to rot. It kills the kid. Uh, snakes and spiders and bugs come pouring out. I think it's kind of alluded to, and I think they kind of talk about it. I don't know if it was in the, uh, if they did a novelization of this or if it was confirmed by Tommy Lee Wallace, but these creatures are, are coming from another dimension. It opens up a portal and these uh, bugs and snakes and whatnot kill anything that's around them. So mom and mom, pa, Cuffler, uh, they they meet their untimely demise. It's a it's a horrifying scene. Uh, me talking about it doesn't do it justice. The the gruesomeness of the mask deteriorating and the the bugs and snakes coming out. 
uh, the fact that a kid is killed, you know, in, in the first two Halloween movies, no kids are killed. Kids aren't, you know, kids are, are in danger, kind of on the periphery, but no real imminent danger. Uh, here, a kid is dying, and and we realize that's the fate of all the kids that have these masks that are going to watch this special uh, broadcast after after trick or treating on Halloween. And Marge also meets a a similar fate as she steals one of these these little plastic tags with the the microchip. She finds the microchip. She's picking at it and prodding at it, and this laser shoots out and obliterates her mouth and her eyes. And you see a bug crawling out of it uh, after the fact. It's it's so uh, scary and it's so gruesome. And so unnerving, I think is probably the best way to, to it's, it's the stuff of nightmares. And, and that is really this movie at its core. It's the stuff of nightmares. These very robotic uh, men that are that chase down uh, Ellie's father and are chasing Ellie and, and Dan Chalice and they're, they're androids. Uh, because Silver Shanrock and Connell Cochran, he's a he's a toy maker at heart, and he has all these kind of wind up toys on display at the at the factory, and so he's he's a toy maker by trade, and he's got this this woman knitting, and it's a big toy, and you find out he's got these androids where you punch them, you punch through them, and they uh, got nothing but a bunch of uh, vanilla pudding inside of them it, it's it's gross it's uh, like it's surreal it's unreal it's otherworldly and it's so bizarre and creepy and like i said the fact that all these kids lives are in danger that's the stakes uh, of this movie and it's so eerie um i think this is probably uh, I know a lot of people have said this before me. This movie would have been a huge hit if it would have just been called Season of the Witch and did not have the Halloween uh, title attached to it because everybody thought they were getting uh, the return of Michael Myers and they did not. What they got was a really good and creepy and scary uh, horror film based on you know the, the celebration of Halloween. Um, this... This has loose ties to Halloween. You know, you're talking about, uh, you know, old Celtic uh, religions, Druidic religions. Uh, you're, you're talking about uh, Samhain and the origins of Halloween and, and, and all the witchy things about that. You've got, um, you know, the, the Halloween masks and the fact that it's it's taking place on Halloween. There's lots of tie-ins to tie it in with the Halloween franchise. They even have the movie Halloween playing on a TV. Uh, I can't remember if it's a gas station or, or someplace or at the hospital. But uh, in this movie, uh, Halloween is actually a movie in this universe. It's it's kind of surreal again. Uh, adds to the uh, surrealness of it. But uh, I, I enjoyed this movie. Uh, when you find out Ellie is an android, she'd been killed and replaced, or or was she an android all along? I don't think she was an android all along. I've heard some uh, reviewers say or imply that she was an android all along. I don't think she was. I think she was captured, uh, disposed of, and uh, Connell Cochran replaced her with a with an android. 
and uh, and and, and Tom Chal or uh, Dan Chalice uh, gets away. He's trying to stop the broadcast. He stops one, but uh, he finds out he can't stop them all. And just the very end, him screaming for them to to turn it off uh, is frightening. It's so nihilistic. It's such a dark end because you know some kids were saved, but a lot of kids weren't saved. And there again, it kind of ties back into the fact that you know. Uh, kids usually don't die in movies and at least up until this point in cinema that yeah, I can't, I can't think of any right off hand, but now, you know, even kids aren't safe in movies. So, uh, one of my, you know, at, at the time I really loved it. And then it was like, uh, I, I jumped on board the Michael Myers, not in it. It sucks phase when I was in my, my teens and, and now that I'm a much older uh, I appreciate Halloween the way I did when I was a kid for what it is, uh, a really scary horror movie. And uh, and like I said, it, it didn't do well in the box office because everyone was expecting the return of Michael Myers. Uh, they didn't get it in 1982 with Halloween 3, but they did get it in 1988 with Halloween 4, The Return of Michael Myers. Uh, of course, directed by Dwight H. Little and written by Alan B. McElroy. I, I really like this. Uh, to me, it was a, a great return to form uh, with the Halloween series and Michael Myers. Uh, we find out that Michael has been in a coma for the past 10 years after the explosion of Halloween 2. Uh, Dr. Loomis and him bear the, the burn scars from that. Uh, this was the first movie where uh, Mustafa Akkad was in complete control of the franchise. Um, they killed Laurie off in an you know, off-screen car crash uh, that happened before the movie. And, and Laurie's daughter, uh, Jamie Lloyd, is now in the uh, care of... The Carruthers family. Um, of course, Rachel Carruthers plays her uh, foster sister and uh, played by the Ellie Cornell. Uh, she does a great job. She is, uh, I don't know whether she's supposed to be the new Lori in this or not, but she just has this likability about her, even though at times she, she kind of comes across as the, the bitchy older sister that doesn't want to take her, her kid sister uh, trick-or-treating, but, but she loves her at heart. And, and the whole family is enjoyable to watch, and, and you care about them. It really is what made the first one so great is because you cared about the characters. You cared about Lori. You cared about Annie. You cared about Linda. Uh, maybe even Bob as well, but but you know you you didn't get that with Halloween two. It felt like you didn't get those characters that you really cared about and connected with. Uh, Halloween one, those girls, uh, Lori, Annie, and Linda were so great because they felt so real. And that's a that's a tribute to Deborah Hill, who I understand wrote a lot of the dialogue uh, for the girls in that. But this was really a, a return to form. In so much as it, it was characters that you cared about. And then, of course, Michael Myers, you know, back to doing what Michael Myers does and chasing down, uh, chasing down teenagers and, and killing uh, one of Michael Myers uh, favorite pastimes. But 
we really uh, need to look at this as the first in a trilogy because you've got this, The Return of Michael Myers, then The Revenge of Michael Myers, number five, and The Curse of Michael Myers. And while it doesn't have the cohesiveness that a trilogy like the, the new ones, Halloween, Halloween Kills, and Halloween Ends is going to have, where David Gordon Green is really in charge of it all, this one you had uh, multiple directors, multiple writers, and it, it showed. It was it was a mess of a trilogy, but it really had uh, some good things. You know, Jamie Lloyd um, is you know she's a she's a haunted kid. You know, haunted by the fact that her mother uh, is dead, haunted by the fact that uh, of the stigma that her uncle you know is this killer. Um, Michael eventually tracks her down. Uh, there's this whole you know fight scene with uh, him falling down a, a well, a mine shaft, uh, whatever it is. And then they throw some dynamite down there and uh, apparently blow him up. Um, but Halloween 5, The Revenge of Michael Myers, we find that uh, in spite of surviving multiple gunshots and being chased down by a bunch of... Uh, for for being from Illinois, there sure is a lot of hillbillies and rednecks in uh, Haddonfield. But uh, being chased down with the posse, shot up and then exploded, uh, we find out that Michael snuck out a little... Uh, a little tunnel that leads to a... Uh, creek or a river if you will floats downstream and gets found by some old hermit and goes back into some catatonic state until halloween a year later and and everything that they set up in halloween for everything i liked about it uh rachel carruthers uh her family uh her relationship with jamie it, it all kind of got destroyed because Halloween 5, of course, directed by uh, Dominique Othenin-Gerard, uh, uh, hopefully I'm saying that right, uh, went a totally different direction. Of course, he killed off uh, the Rachel character, um, not right off the bat, but really early, which left us with her her best friend, Tina, Um who, you know, no offense to Wendy Kaplan. I'm sure it was more the writing than anything, but the character was was quite annoying. Uh, the little kid that was friends with Jamie, uh, quite annoying. There was a lot of annoying characters. Uh, again, you know, the one character I did care about, Ellie, uh, is killed. Uh, Danielle Harris, which I really didn't get, uh, I didn't really take the time to, to talk about her. Uh, here a minute ago when we were talking about four, there wasn't much to talk about. It's it was a return to form uh, for Michael. Michael was scary. The mask wasn't as good as like the first two, uh, but it was okay. It was a creepy, scary movie, and it, like I said, the return of Michael Myers. Everyone was so amped up about that, and Danielle Harris playing Jamie Lloyd, uh, Laurie Strode's daughter, was she did such a, a fantastic job. She had a lot to carry uh, as a little kid with all of this acting and being scared and, uh, you know, being chased by Michael Myers. Uh, I believe um, George P. Wilbur played Michael Myers in, in part four. And I remember hearing stories of, of him and uh, Don Shanks. I can't remember if he did it as well, but, you know, being very mindful to like take the mask off when they're around, uh, 
you know, when they're around Danielle, just to make sure that she knew that, you know, it's all acting. And but uh, but Danielle Harris really, uh, you know, for, for such a young actress, really kind of uh, showed she had the stuff and was such a delight and brought so much to part four. And and even though five was a little lackluster in some areas, she brought a lot to that. Even though they took away her voice, uh, she's so traumatized by the events of part four, they end with her stabbing her foster mother. I, I don't know if she was impl- it's implied that she killed her or just stabbed her. I always thought she just stabbed uh, the foster mother. But Anyway, she's she's in this uh, hospital, this facility, being cared for, uh, suffering from uh, what is tantamount to PTSD. Um, she can't talk um, because of the trauma. Doctor Loomis is is ratcheted up the insanity uh, from part four. You know, he was a little more uh, a little more manic in, in part four, and it's just even more so. So far, there's so much so that. Like in part four, he's he's using Jamie almost as bait uh, to try and trap Michael in this big, you know, metal net. Um, part five, he he essentially does the same thing, uh, just even even more so, uh, willing to to use Jamie as bait to try and capture Michael. Uh, there's a, a fantastically scary scene with Jamie where she's in this like air duct and Michael's trying to stab her and like cuts her leg. Some frightening stuff. Not not as iconically. Nothing in in these three movies, four, five, and six, is iconically scary like the first one. But they really haven't had much iconically scary kills or events. Uh, since that first one, that's probably where the the movie franchises had a little bit of a downfall because uh, you don't have, like I said, that that iconography of of these spectacular, not spectacular murders, just murders well done for a, for a horror movie. But uh, but part five, one of the things that really kind of does it in for me, they changed, you know, Dominique uh, Gerard, Othian Gerard. Did uh, did the change of the Myers house made it into like this gothic mansion, like which didn't fit. Uh, the mask was weird. I did not like the mask in part five. Um, he introduced the mark of thorn, which I think is the one good thing that he did. I, I really was intrigued by that. Uh, again, it was another layer of explanation as to what make, makes Michael who he is without really spelling it out. I enjoyed that. What I didn't enjoy was the man in black, uh, who also had the mark of thorn. But he he steps off a bus uh, about halfway through, maybe three quarters of the way through the movie. Uh, no explanation. Dressed from black head to toe. He's got these black cowboy boots with the metal around the, the tip of the toe and the, the heel. I wanted those kind of boots when I was uh 15 years old uh, not so much now but <laughs> but i remember thinking that it looked really cool uh there were so many questions as to you know who is this guy is he gonna be uh on michael's side is he a foil for michael i, I know there were a lot of rumors uh maybe more so just fan fiction from my friends uh, who liked the movie that thought maybe michael had a twin brother because they had the matching tattoo uh, there's all these questions around this man in black that were not answered and until they finally capture Michael at the end. He's in jail and 
the man in black busts him out uh, machine gun style, blows up the wall, comes in, shoots up, and and I I don't really I don't know if they actually take Jamie or if it's implied that they take her, but we find out in part six that they did take her, which is six years later, and Jamie is. Yeah, the the character playing her is much older than Jamie should be. Uh, of course, we start out with uh, J.C. Brandy, who who did a good job as as an older Jamie Lloyd. It just it was kind of disappointing that Danielle Harris uh, wasn't able to return for this character. And there's lots of talk of money and and other issues it wasn't just uh you know daniel harris wanting more money there there's other things behind it but uh i know she's disappointed that she wasn't be able, able to be a part of it and we were too but like i said jc brandy did a good uh, did a good job with what she was given with this because uh f- for all intents and purposes i, I wouldn't want uh, daniel harris coming back if they weren't going to give her anything to do and they kill off Jamie Lloyd. Uh, they find out she's in the hospital, uh, Smith's Grove. We find out, and she's been impregnated. She has a baby. Nurse helps her escape. She hides the baby. Gets found by Michael. Uh, probably one of the the more scary scenes in this movie is the chase with the barn, and and when Michael finally uh, catches Jamie and kills her. Uh, that, that whole sequence was pretty good. Um, but we get introduced to an older Tommy Doyle played by Paul Rudd in his first really big, uh, motion picture, uh, of his career. And, uh, I really loved, uh, Paul Rudd as an older Tommy Doyle. You can tell he's still, uh, facing the trauma of, of that night in 1978, uh, when when he and, and Lori and Lindsay Wallace were were terrorized by Michael, you know, he's obsessed with Michael, finding out everything about him. He's obsessed with the Mark of Thorne. Um, we also get introduced to Marianne Hagen, uh, who plays Kara Strode, um, the niece of Lori's uh, adopted father. Um, Danny Strode is her son. Uh, we get Dr. Wynn makes a return from the first couple of, of Halloweens, or at least the first Halloween, uh, played by a different guy. Mitch Ryan plays him in this, but uh, but just a, a really solid cast. There again, something else they did right was, was create characters that you cared about. You cared about Kara Strode. You cared about Danny. Uh, you cared about, you know... Uh, these characters, uh, maybe not so much uh, Kara's father. <laughs> he was kind of a kind of a dick, but uh, wonderfully played by uh, Bradford English, uh, John Strode. But uh, he he meets his untimely demise in a very um, very outlandish way. It, it kind of was, I don't know, tantamount to what happened in Halloween Resurrection. But we'll again get to that. But. The one thing I I felt sorry for the director and the writer. Of course, Joe Chappelle directed this. Daniel Ferens, uh, he wrote this. And he was really kind of painted into to a corner with what was given to him from Halloween 5. And, and that he had this man in black character that he had to explain. He had the Mark of Thorn that he kind of had to explain and flesh out. He had you know, Jamie being abducted 
and what happened to her, you know, where has she been? Uh, so he really, you know, it, it, Daniel Farron's uh, really had kind of his hands uh, tied behind his back with this. And I thought he did a good job. And for what it's worth, I, I think this is a, I, I like the Michael Myers mask. Uh, it wasn't one of the best ones, but I liked it better than part five. Um, I liked the tone of the movie. It felt like a Halloween movie, even though it was more Halloween for the MTV generation. Lots of flashing lights and jump cuts and, you know, very felt like a, a you know, 90s uh, alt rock video at, at times. But you still, in spite of that, in spite of itself, it still felt like a Halloween movie. It felt more like that than, than part five did. Uh, part five just felt uh, like they were trying to be art housey without uh, without paying attention to what made Halloween and Michael Myers great. Uh, Michael Myers felt more superhuman than inhuman, um, if that makes sense. Uh, whereas part six, you know, he still had that kind of maybe superhuman quality to him, but. They brought back the things that made him creepy, the, the you know, being here, then not being here, uh, the, the slow walk, the, the menace that Michael Myers, you know, when he's stalking the halls of Smith Grove, you know, once the movie gets contained there, uh, that's some scary stuff. Now, granted, there's a lot of stuff there at Smith Grove that uh, doesn't make any sense. The whole operation scene where I don't know whether they're going to operate on Danny and the baby uh, or, or who, but Michael Myers interrupts that and slaughters everyone. It, it kind of, it's one of the things that I didn't like about this movie was the whole cult of Thorn thing that they, they did with it. Uh, I like the idea of the Mark of Thorn. I like that being a reason this curse uh, is why Michael's doing what he's doing. Uh, he has to kill his family to appease some ancient god or, or something like that i like the idea of that what i didn't like was the um was the cult of thorn and the the idea that it felt like in in some regards dr win who was ahead of this uh felt like he had power over michael and then in other regards he had no power over michael i just i i don't think they really knew what to do with this mark of thorn or or how to to make it work i think there's a good story there i just don't think this is that story uh, although there was one scene probably one of the scariest scenes in the movie was when mrs blankenship uh she runs the um boarding house where tommy doyle stays she's talking to danny about the origins of halloween and sam hain and and it's just so eerie and creepy. And then you see a, you know, it's the cameras on her. And then you see lightning flash and you see uh, Michael's silhouette and the mask outside the window. It's just, it's, it's frightening stuff. And, and that's some of the horror that you get with this that I didn't really feel in part five. Part five is one of those, you know, like I said, I loved part four. 
Part 5, I liked it more when I first saw it. Now that I've seen it several times since then, I'm not as big a fan. I don't hate it. Uh, there are Halloween movies that I hate more, which we'll get into. Uh, part 6, uh, there again, I was quite confused because once they get into the end of it with all the embryos and the green ooze or whatever that uh, Tommy Doyle injects into Michael... That got a little weird. Uh, I wasn't sure if there was cloning going on or what. That There again, I, I just don't think they knew where this story was going to go. And we're just kind of flying by the seat of their pants. Um, much like, you know, uh, Dominique Othian uh, Gerard did with The Man in Black. I don't think he knew where he was going with it. He just did it. And that, therein lies the problem. Uh, we talked about how they rushed into part two. Uh, part four... Uh, did really well in the movie theaters and they wanted to rush a sequel out. So part five was rushed part six. They had a little more time, but there again, they were painted into a corner with everything that, uh, uh, Othie and Gerard did in, in part five. It just, uh, it, it's a mess of a trilogy, trilogy, uh, of movies, but there's so much about it. I did like, and it just wasn't done right. And, and that's the sad thing. That led to the big reboot in 1998 with Halloween H2O 20 years later. Uh, a return of Jamie Lee Curtis to the franchise. Uh, but that meant that they had to ignore... Uh, well, they didn't have to, but they ignored everything from part two on. Uh, three, four, five, and six were no longer a part of canon, although it could have been. Uh, there was actually a scene where they... Um, referenced, uh, you know, some kid was talking about the Michael Myers killings in Haddonfield, Illinois. Of course, this taking place in, in California where uh, Jamie Lee Curtis's Jamie Laurie Strode is a headmistress of a private school. She's going by Carrie Tate. Uh, there's a kid in class talking about the Michael Myers murders and talks about uh, Jamie Lloyd. Uh, eventually, Laurie Strode's daughter uh, being killed, and and then there's a, a scene where I think uh, Laurie's dealing with that. That would have been cool. That would have been a nice nod to say, hey, you know what? Uh, we're not going to really play off of 4, 5, and 6, but, uh, but we're not pretending like it didn't happen. But they left that scene out. That scene didn't happen. So essentially, this is part 3 after 1 and 2. And I... I wanted to like this. I love the fact that they brought back Jamie Lee Curtis. Uh, the scenes with her are, are the best. Um, her as Laurie Strode, when she's facing down Michael Myers, when she that, that one scene that was in all the trailers where she yells, Michael, and, and that, that was powerful stuff. Um, the things I didn't like about it uh, was, other than that, the movie felt like Michael Myers comes to Dawson's Creek. It felt like an episode of Dawson's Creek with all the, you know, teenagers. Uh, didn't help that Michelle Williams was in it. <laughs> uh, LL Cool J is in it, and, and I like LL, LL Cool J. I think he's a good actor. His character really didn't do anything for me in this. And that's no fault of his. I just don't think it was written well. Uh, I know a lot of people like this one because it was bigger budget, but that was always one of the nice things, the great things about Halloween, because Halloween was... Uh, you know, the most successful independent film at the time, uh, or for a long time after that, it always felt like uh, more with less 
with Halloween. Whereas this, they had a big budget. They had big orchestras playing the, the Halloween theme. It just felt like, um, it just didn't feel like a Halloween movie. I really hated the mask that they had for Michael Myers. The eyebrows on that thing looked like, uh, you look like Phyllis Diller with those drawn on eyebrows. It just, um, just not a fan of this one. Uh, like I said, uh, probably the, the best stuff was all the stuff between Jamie and Michael. Uh, the part where Adam Arkin, uh, Jamie Lee Curtis is telling Adam Arkin uh, her story about how she was uh, Laurie Strode and, and Michael was her brother. I mean, that was compelling stuff. Uh, the ending where, you know, there's that big scene with the van, crashes, pins Michael. She lops his head off with an axe. That felt like a fitting end. But uh, but Mustafa Cade, uh, he is not having any of, any of that because he retained a creative control uh, and he didn't want Michael Myers to die because Michael Myers was a cash cow for him. So we get Halloween Resurrection, which Jamie Lee Curtis, uh, she I, I don't know. The, <clears throat> there's lots of different reasons uh, that are told as to why she came back for this. One was a payday, uh, or maybe she felt like um, H2O uh, was just a payday for her, and she wanted to do something more. I really liked what they did with her. Um, they set it up where Michael somehow switched with some guy, and it was some guy in the Michael mask that got pinned, and, and Laurie Strode cut an innocent guy's head off. Whether that's believable or not, I don't know. But I like the fact that she's in this uh, uh, asylum. She's crazy. Uh, but she's not. She's she's planning. She's tr setting a trap for Michael. And the showdown between her and Michael at the beginning. And where they uh, she kisses him as he drops her and she falls to her death. A lot of people say that's disrespectful to Laurie Strode and Jamie Lee Curtis. Uh, maybe... Um, it was the most powerful and compelling stuff of this movie. Good, bad, or indifferent. That was the best part of this movie. And I still don't like it. I, I don't like You don't kill off Michael Myers. You don't kill off Laurie Strode. Uh, Sam Loomis, uh, he had to die because uh, Donald Pleasance, unfortunately, uh, before the end of filming on part six, uh, passed away. He wasn't doing well. So uh, that character had to, had to die. But... Like I said, uh, that was the best part of the movie, and I didn't even really like it because, like I said, I, I didn't want Laurie to die. Uh, but then it goes on to this uh, really of the time uh, Dangertainment, Busta Rhymes, and Tyra Banks own this company, Dangertainment, and they're going to do a reality internet show from the Myers house, get a bunch of teenagers or 20 somethings, college kids uh, to spend the night there. And just nobody's likable. It just, it was very much at the time, very much about reality television. Busta Rhymes, I, I like Busta Rhymes as an actor. He's fine and all, but uh, the character was just really annoying. Uh, all the kung fu stuff, him kung fu fighting with Michael Myers. I didn't buy any of it. I didn't like any of it. I hated his little speech at the end where... Uh, Michael Myers is a killer shark. I thought it was stupid. If you look at H2O and Resurrection as a one and two off, I gotta say H2O is the better of the two. Uh, not by much, 
just because you get more Jamie Lee Curtis, I think. Uh, but Resurrection, probably one of my least favorite movies in this franchise. It's a toss-up between that movie and the next two movies. Uh, we decided, you know, Mustafa Akkad unfortunately passed away. So his son, uh, Malik Akkad, uh, took over and they decided that, you know, we're going to reboot the series again. And he brought in Rob Zombie to do like uh, a traditional reboot with a remake of Halloween. Only this time, the first half of the movie was going to be uh, digging into Michael Myers' past as a child and what makes him tick. And there, that's why this movie is horrible right off the bat. I'm not going to pretend. If anybody uh, disagrees with me, you're more than welcome to, but that's what makes this movie horrible. It's, you know, making... Michael Myers is a bad guy. He's a killer because he was bullied and treated mean as a kid. And there again, that's that makes Michael Myers human. It takes away anything supernatural. It takes away any, you know, it's like, again, like I said, if you want just a, a kid that was treated mean and bullied as a kid, grew up to be a serial killer and a stalker, go watch a Lifetime movie uh, because that's what you get there. It really took any of the the menace out of why Michael was doing what he did. And that just, you know, I just didn't mind that. So to add menace, they get six foot eight uh, Tyler Maine to play Michael. And, and he does a good job. I mean, he's big and brooding and looks scary, but he's just a man. And that just doesn't, I, I don't know. It just lost all the heart that Halloween 1 through 6 had. Even Halloween H2O or Resurrection had. At least, Michael, there was that that air of there's something evil, like more than just evil about that. There's something inside of him. Michael's no longer there. There's something that's taken hold inside of him that makes him that kid with the blank, you know, thousand-yard stare. At the beginning of uh, Halloween 78, uh, that lost all this and tried to explain. This was like uh, a Netflix documentary making of a serial killer or something like that. I, I just didn't like it. Uh, the thing, I know Rob Zombie has got like this fetish with hillbillies and uh, stereotypical trailer trash. And even though this movie is set in like modern times, yeah, it felt like it was in the 1970s and everybody was living like dirt bags and quite possibly doing pornography. <laughs> just everybody looked greasy and dirty and I just didn't enjoy it. I mean, there were some bright spots in the cast. Don't get me wrong. Uh, Brad Dourif is as Sheriff Lee Brackett. Danielle Harris finally gets to return to the series, although she's not playing Jamie Lloyd anymore. She's playing Annie Brackett. Uh, she did a great job. Dee Wallace played Cynthia Strode. I did not like Malcolm McDowell as Dr. Loomis because he just, I like Malcolm McDowell. I just didn't like him as Sam Loomis. Sam Loomis had a pathos about him, whereas Malcolm McDowell has a, like a smarminess about him, like a cockiness about him that just didn't fit the character. And especially when you head into part two starts and there's all that crap about the white horse and Michael Myers is roaming around looking like Grizzly Adams. It just was just not enjoyable. And part of two's problem was, again, they rushed production. 
Halloween 1 came out in 2007, Halloween 2, 2008, uh, because, you know, the Akkads, they, they, you know, once they make bank, they got a strike while the iron's hot and uh, like father, like son. It wasn't that the fact it was rushed and that Rob Zombie didn't want to do it. It just, I didn't like it. The stories were horrible. It lacked all the heart of, of the original Halloween or even any of its predecessors. Uh, just did not like the Rob Zombie Halloween movies at all. There was talk of doing a third Rob Zombie Halloween. I don't know if he was going to be a part of it, but a third in that line. It was going to be a Halloween 3D. They nixed that and decided to go, let's reboot the series again with Halloween 2018. Of course, uh, not rebooting the series in the Rob Zombie sense. Uh, they decided to forget everything that happened from two uh, until this point. So this is a direct sequel to Halloween one that they decided to call Halloween like the first one. Yeah, I'm not confusing at all. But David Gordon Green uh, directed it. He was part of the writing team with uh, Jeff Fradley and Danny McBride. Uh, yeah, they're more known for comedy. So I was a little concerned about how this movie was going to play out uh was it going to be all played for laughs or was it going to was it going to be played you know like a straight up horror movie and you got a little bit of both you know you had some laughs and, and some of them that took you out of the the one scene where the uh the one girl's babysitting and she gets killed and the little kid she's babysitting uh i was like oh shit it, it just it was played for laughs, and yeah, it makes you chuckle, but it just took you right out of the horror of the scene, which was a, a pretty horrifying scene. You saw it in the movie uh, trailer. Uh, you know, the babysitter goes to shut the door, and it won't shut all the way, and it won't shut all the way. Something's blocking it, so she opens it up, and Michael's there. That's That was a scary scene. Uh, nothing that we haven't seen before. Uh, Michael coming out of a closet, but this movie didn't have a ton of really scary scenes. That I thought was pretty scary. Uh, the scene with the motion detector light I thought was interesting and, and scary. But other than that, everything was your random just gory kills from Michael, which eh, was a little disappointing. I was expecting some of that patient horror that you got from the original one. Another thing I thought was interesting about this that I did uh, enjoy to a degree was the fact that they mirrored a lot of uh, Michael and Lori scenes from the first one. Like the first one, you had uh, a scene where Lori's in the classroom and then she looks out the classroom and there's Michael. Whereas this one, you have Allison, uh, Lori Strode's granddaughter, uh, sitting in class. She looks outside and Lori Strode's there. Uh, in the first one, you had Michael, Lori inside the closet, uh, with the, the slatted uh, bifold doors and Michael stalking her and, and you see Michael breaking in. Um, they had a kind of a reversal of that where Lori's the one she's looking for Michael and stalking him outside of, of a closet like that. Uh, Michael falls off the second story and uh, he's there lying there. Everybody thinks he's dead. And then they look back and he's gone. They had a scene where Michael uh, Lori falls off the second story and Michael sees her there uh, thinking she's dead or incapacitated. And next thing you see, she's gone. So they, they did a lot of mirroring. It, it really was much of the 
uh, Force Awakens, where everything was derivative of the original. And it was a lot of mirroring of the original. And that was okay. I, I thought, you know, a lot of it very much played off the nostalgia of of the original. But it I was looking for something new. I was looking for a new story. Uh, they didn't have to to make this a direct sequel to the first one. They could have recognized some of the other ones. You could still recognize those as part of canon and and done something really cool and original. But they 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 took the lazy way out. I'm not going to mince any words here. It was lazy to say, you know, we're going to disregard everything that's happened and just go back to um, make a direct sequel to part one. And, and we're not even going to recognize that Laurie and Michael are related in any way. Um, and, and then that everything, you know, everything felt like a vehicle just to get Michael and Lori together. The podcasters go and antagonize them and awaken them, much like the Force Awakens. The Force uh, was awakened inside of Michael Myers, and he gets the mask. And uh, Dr. Sartain, which uh, Lori even calls him the new Loomis, he's more like the new, new Dr. Wynn. Uh, where he's, you know, he wants to, he essentially lets Michael uh, loose so he can see him in his natural habitat. Um, he's like a, a sad shadow of what Dr. Loomis was and not uh, not a good character. I, I didn't enjoy that character at all. Um, you know, the, the women of this, uh, Jamie Lee Curtis as Laurie Strode, Judy Greer as Karen Nelson, uh, Laurie's daughter, um, Andy Matichak as Allison Nelson, uh, Lori's granddaughter. I liked all of them. I liked their interactions. Those were those were some of the good parts of it. Uh, the interactions there, um, even even Toby Huss as Ray Nelson, um, Allison, or actually Karen's husband and Allison's father. Uh, he's he adds a little uh, a little comedy, and he he did a good. He was a fine job. Uh, acting and this character really made you care about the character and it was a you know anything you've seen Toby has and he's just he's always uh, adds an interesting quirk to his characters so I enjoyed that I enjoyed Will Patton as Deputy Frank Hawkins uh, he you know he kind of felt like in the long line of uh, Sheriff Brackett and, and those types of characters uh, one problem I had with uh, movies like H2O and Resurrection and even the Rob Zombie movies is that in, in those movies, uh, you saw Michael's eyes too much through the mask. In, in all the previous ones, Michael Myers' eyes in that mask were always always felt like blacked out. It felt like you were looking into two black inkwells. Uh, you never really saw Michael's eyes unless they meant for you to do it, uh, whether he took his mask off and he's got a single tear for Jamie, but you never saw his eyes very much when he had the mask on. And I think that was smart with H2O, with Resurrection, with the Rob Zombies, you saw Michael Myers eyes way too much. And, and that lent itself to humanizing him more when you know it's been established this guy is is more than human he's got an evil in him he's an evil presence he's the shape he's the boogeyman uh he is you know evil incarnate as dr loomis would say uh the one thing i think uh, that halloween 2018 has kind of rectified and 
and I think they're going to continue that in in Halloween Kills, is that they they brought back that sense that uh, Michael's eyes, there's just, you know, there's blackness there. I thought David Gordon Green did a great job of of bringing back one, uh, a cool, older, decrepit version of the mask. Uh, I thought that's one thing where, you know, the Halloween uh, and Halloween 2 that Rob Zombie did, uh, the two before that, you know, Resurrection and H2O, I was not a fan of any of those masks. This one was a cool one. This one looked good. Uh, it looked like it was 40 years old. Uh, and you brought back that sense that, that there was two deep, dark wells for eyes with Michael Myers. And I think that is important to that character. And that's one thing I really liked about uh, Halloween 2018. And I'm looking forward to in, in Halloween Kills. So there's a lot to like about it. Uh, I don't hate this movie. I just... Uh, it wasn't necessary to do a movie where you disregard everything except the original. And that's what I didn't like about it. Now, what are we going to see in uh, Halloween Kills coming up on October 15th? Well, we're going to see a return of Tommy Doyle. Uh, I was disappointed Paul Rudd's not returning as Tommy Doyle. He wanted to. I think he was offered, but there was a scheduling conflict. So Anthony Michael Hall... Uh, is going to be playing Tommy Doyle. Um, the young lady that plays uh, Lindsay Wallace is uh, in the original one. Uh, she is going to be making a return. Kyle Richards was her name, or actually is her name. Uh, Nancy Stevens, who played uh, Marion Chambers, Dr. Loomis's assistant in, in all the other films, she's going to be making a return. So uh, a lot of old faces uh, coming back for this one. Some new faces playing old characters. Uh, it, it should be interesting. I, I'm not sure how I feel it from the commercials I've seen. Um, it, this all seems to be culminating to an end where they end the franchise with Halloween Ends coming out next year. Um, we'll we'll see if that happens, but uh, I, I'm not sure. The crowd's chanting "Evil Ends Tonight." It just seems kind of hokey. Um, that was a problem with Halloween 2018. Is there just seemed to be like everything was a setup for uh, a one-liner. Uh, happy Halloween, Michael, and that sort of crap. That, that's Busta Rhymes nonsense from from Resurrection. That's that kind of level of uh, nonsense that I just didn't like about that movie. I didn't like it in Halloween 2018, and I'm sure not to like it in, in this uh, Halloween Kills coming out on October 15th. But you know what? Um, I'm going to watch it anyway because I am interested to see how this trilogy of movies plays out and and what, if anything, holds for the future of the Halloween franchise. You know, you had uh, a lot of great characters, uh, a lot of great actors. Halloween is such, for all its flaws, uh, it's such a great franchise because Michael Myers is such a great character. Laurie Strode uh, being played by Jamie Lee Curtis and Dr. Sam Loomis played by uh, the incomparable Donald Pleasance are, are just, uh, those are characters that... Uh, no matter how bad the movie is, they elevate it. And no matter how crazy or convoluted the storylines get, they elevate it. And if you just enjoy the movies for what they are, there's a lot of enjoyment and a lot of horror to be had in the Halloween franchise. Uh, even with these new ones, 
Uh, I may not like the fact that they are disregarding uh, everything but uh, Halloween 78, but I'm enjoying it all the same because it's Halloween, it's Michael Myers, it's Laurie Strode, and uh, you've got those two components. Uh, that's not a bad thing. And, you know, we'll see where the franchise goes from here, but we'll find out the next installment coming up on our October the 18th episode of Odds Bodkin's Curiosity Shop. So Monday, October the 11th, uh, a Halloween episode of sorts. We're going to talk about scary movies for Halloween. Uh, some of my favorite movies to to scare me uh, during this time of year. Coming up on October the 14th, we're going to have some music to haunt by, some great rock and roll to listen to, some scary stuff uh, for the Halloween season. And as I said, next Friday, October 15th, Halloween Kills hits the movie theater. So a lot to look forward to if you like horror, fantasy, and sci-fi. Check out the Facebook fan page for all sorts of trailers and articles. I'm always posting uh, whatever I can find that's interesting in the world of horror, fantasy, and sci-fi. And uh, thanks for listening. Uh, hit the subscribe button. Uh, share this podcast with your friends. If they love horror, fantasy, and sci-fi, leave a review. Uh, five stars would be awesome and be greatly appreciated. So until next time. Thank you for visiting Odds Bodkin's Curiosity Shop. We hope that you found something to your liking and visit the shop again soon. But even though you may come back, you never really get to leave Odds Bodkin's Curiosity Shop. Ha 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 ha!